you ready to organize your amazing ideas into a powerful book? It's time to write your book. Welcome to the Write Hour, nonfiction tips from the Write Coach. And I'm Joyce Glass, your host. I am so glad you joined me today. Welcome to episode 206 of the Write Hour. Have you ever considered traditionally publishing your book? Well, today we are talking with Steve Lobby. He's a literary agent and the president of the Steve Lobby Agency. He's been in the book industry for over four decades. First, he was a bookstore manager where he was awarded the National Store of the Year by CBA. Then he spent many years with Bethany House Publishers where he was named Editor of the Year by AWSA. In 2003, he became an agent where he and his agency have represented over 1,500 new books, and Steve was named Agent of the Year by ACFW. He was also inducted into the Grand Canyon University Hall of Fame by their College of Theology. In addition, he oversees acquisitions for Enclave Publishing and serves as president and owner of the Christian Writers Institute and author of the Christian Writers Market Guide and for book proposal tips and tricks. His office and he lives in sunny Phoenix, Arizona. I've learned so much from Steve through meeting him at the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Writers Conference as well as through this interview. I know you will find great value in listening to Steve today. Steve, welcome and tell us a little bit more about your journey to becoming an agent. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, goodness. How did I become an agent? That's one of those long stories. So we have an hour, right? Um, maybe <laughs> <Yes>. I'll <focus laughs> question. <laughs> you know, I started back in 1981 as a, a bookseller, part-time shelf duster as a college student, and uh, rose up you know, into full-time, then became a store manager there for the chain, later the national buyer for that chain. And then uh, 92, um, I became an editor for Bethany House Publishers, worked for the great Carol Johnson uh, for many years <clears throat> in both fiction and nonfiction, uh, ultimately became the editorial director of nonfiction, and yet I also still did a lot of fiction. So I would have people think I only did fiction, and other people thought I only did nonfiction, and it was kind of interesting. Well, then in 90, uh, sorry, 2003, uh, Bethany House was sold to Baker. And at that point, everyone in the company, you know, had a decision to make. Do we stick with the, co the new company or do we, you know, make, a, make a, another choice? Because I was offered a job with Baker to do what I was doing. And it's one of those moments in life where God comes in and completely random. I had never thought about becoming an agent. It was never even on my radar. Uh, I had worked with them. Um, I appreciated what they did, but I just never had thought that it was something I would do. And I got a cold call from a New York secular literary agency asking me questions about the Christian market, saying, you know, how does it work? You know, who are the major players? What are some of the things can be doing? And after 20 minutes, uh, he said to me, you know, I could listen to you for the next two years and I still wouldn't get it. So why don't you just come work for me? And I said, are you serious? And he goes, 
Yeah, that's actually why I called. Um, and so we, after a month of back and forth and my flying to New York to meet with him, I ended up leaving the Bethany Baker transition and uh, becoming a literary agent working out of my office here in Phoenix for a New York literary agency. Um, we worked together for almost a year and a half. Uh, and then I decided that what I really wanted to do was be on my own. And so May of 2004, almost exactly 14 years ago, um, a little more than 14 years ago, I formed a Steve Lobby agency and here we are. So that's the journey. <laughs> Not something I necessarily pursued. In fact, I never applied for any of these jobs. Even the first job in the bookstore. Mm -hmm. I went as a customer and the lady behind the counter said, are you looking for a job? I went, well, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we are. Yeah. There you go. Well, sometimes some things just come to you, right? So yeah. um, what, what are you interested in books? Obviously, if you went to the bookstore, or had you always been interested oh, yeah. in books? Yeah, I've always been kind of a, a, a book nut. Um, goodness. There, there was a book in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, called The Minister's Library by Cyril Barber. Um, most people don't know about it anymore, but it was a it was a book intended to help pastors build their library. So it would be like 300 pages of one paragraph descriptions of books about various aspects of theology, Bible study, dictionaries, you know, commentaries, all of that. And my copy is marked, underlined, yellow highlighted. I mean, to the point that the book was almost falling apart. I basically memorized it so and began. This is free internet, my, obviously. <laughs> I just loved it. Yeah, I just love that kind of thing. And and the internet does not do that for you. You still no one way say. So what's the best commentary on Galatians? Well, right. um. I could probably name 15 of them for you, but it all depends on what you are needing your particular commentary for. Is it on the Greek right. text? You know, is it exegetical, expositional, devotional, Bible study? What is it? Well, that's, that's kind of got me started. Mm -hmm. I also had a great fascination in uh, Bible translations, mm -hmm. the variety and where they came from, which as a bookseller, almost every single day someone would come in and I would stand behind the Bible counter and talk to them about the differences between the translations. Different translations. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I have, um, I was just thinking about that recently is I have an uncle who knows actually a cousin. Um, and you, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, the King James version is the only version of the Bible that's biblically correct. And it's like, really? Mm -hmm. So you don't think God can speak through other people in other translations and speak to me through NIV and, you know, NLT, any other version you could come up with. <laughs> and it, it was kind of like, you know, that's really an arrogant thing to say. <laughs> well, it's not uncommon. In fact, no, there's, it, a, there's a King James on They it's actually not. believe the ultimate end of that argument believes that the Bible was re-inspired in 1611 in English 
And as one of my friends said, well, that's a bummer for the French. Uh, <laughs> and one of the early books I acquired when I worked for Bethany House is a book called The King James Only Debate, mm. written by James White. And it's still considered the main text if you are running into that conversation. Mm. It's the book to, to pick up. To pick up the, and talk to. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I struggle with that one because I love other versions that speak to me. Now, there are some things that the, the way the King James is written, it's beautiful. And I love yep. how it's written. But to say that only God can speak through one version is, to me, kind of arrogant. So that's just Joyce's take. <laughs> that's Joyce's version on the King James version. <laughs> but anyways, well, tell us. I'm sorry. It just shows the variety of, and the interest that I've had that kind of dovetailed to being a bookseller. It was ideal. Right. And so the world of publishing came through our door. Mm -hmm. And I would have to um, figure out what was on the shelf so I could help the customer. Right. Even today, here we are 30 some odd years later, when I get a book proposal, I still have in my mind Sally, who would come in on Tuesday, second Tuesday of every month, come into the store and walk up and say, Steve, what's new? And I would think, huh, would Sally like this book or that book? Or the So when I get a book proposal, I'm actually thinking of the end user every time, just like I'm a bookseller. Yeah, so that, and that's where, you know, I feel like all of our positions always lead us to the next thing, and they're always useful. Like, when I was in college, I taught preschool, and who would have thought teaching preschool would help me as a writer and speaker? But guess what? It does, because you have to keep them entertained, and you have to know how to, to change things up every 15, 20 minutes. And as a speaker, you have to know how to keep people's attention. And I had to keep three-year-olds' attentions. If you can keep three-year-olds' attentions for more than 15 minutes, you're doing good. Yeah. <laughs> and that's 15 of them, you know, not just one. And so, like you said, that helped you build up to where you are now. And you can think back to that. And uh -huh. I think all of our experiences can always be used for in some form in a way to help us with what we're doing currently. So I feel like nothing's ever in vain. You know, <laughs> there's usually a reason. Definitely. Well, let's get on with it with, because I'm sure a lot of people are curious to know what do authors or why do authors need agents? What, what is the purpose of an agent? Cause some people are confused agents, publishers, what's the difference? Why do we need them? And then if once you go through that, then kind of tell us what's the best way to find an agent. Well, it's a, um, it's a, it's a common question I get. Uh, imagine if you don't know what an agent is and you're in a non-writing setting and someone asks you, so what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a literary agent. I always get the answer. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> So I've learned to put it in simple form. I said every actor or actress has an agent. Every uh, professional athlete has an agent. Well, I'm the agent to the writer. Right. So immediately you see, oh, you're that person 
who handles career questions, who puts them on the right team, who negotiates the next big contract, who helps them filter on whether they should take that next job with that particular film script or whatever. It's a very similar process. Um, you know, I, I was trying to, I was actually thinking what, what someday what, what I should do is create one of these word clouds of what an agent does. <laughs> and let's see, I'm a pastor. I am a um, drill master, drill sergeant. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a friend. I'm an accountant. I'm your worst critic. <laughs> um, you know, all these different kinds of aspects of what an agent does. So let's say you and I were working together and you sent me your idea and you just, you were really high on it. You thought it was wonderful because you thought of it this morning when you were in the shower and you sent it to me and I'm like, um, Joyce, um, no, <laughs> you really don't want to be writing a uh, exegetical commentary on Titus. I just don't think that's part of your brand. And you're like, but it's a great idea. I just thought of this. I mean, seriously, this has happened. I have had clients who, let's say, example, for was a novelist, was very successful. He got very inspired by political debate about 10 years ago. And so he wrote an entire book solving the political debate of the day, nonfiction. And sent it to me and goes, okay, I want you to shop this around. And I said, uh, no, nobody cares what you think. You don't blog about this. You don't speak about this. You don't hold political office. Your family and friends and church people know that you have an opinion on this, but people are looking to you for novels. Maybe work some of this into your next novel, but... A nonfiction book, I mean, that just doesn't make sense. So you have to have someone in your life as a writer who can help you curate, who can help you filter your ideas, help give you focus. So many writers are incredibly creative. I mean, over-the-top creative, where they can come up with a new book idea every single day. But which one right. do they actually work on? Which is the one that has the most commercial viability? Which is the one that's going to work? Does that mean I'm right every time? No. I mean, we can shop a book and then we end up with nobody wanting it. Okay, fine. Then let's go to the next one. And we keep working at it until we find something that works. Um, so in my mind, that's one element of what an agent does or why people need an agent. Yes. The other thing is that when it comes to contracts, we're talking intellectual property. And when you sign the grant of rights for a book contracts, it is for the life. It is for your life plus 70 years. Mm -hmm. That's the term of copyright. So if you plan on living 30 more years, that means you are signing a book contract that controls your book for the next century. Mm-hmm. So you better make sure that everything in that contract is pristine. 
because it might not affect you today, but it might affect your heirs or your great-grandchildren or your great-great-grandchildren. I mean, this people just are very cavalier when they look at contracts. They trust the publisher and say, oh, sure, they're not going to cheat me. Well, no, they won't cheat you. But the contract is going to be weighted very heavily in their favor. Definitely. And you need to have someone who can push back and say, how about we move the needle back a little more toward the middle of this issue? And it might not even be a money issue. It might be a rights issue. It might be something completely unrelated to what you normally think is important. Um, I'm dealing with foreign rights issues right now with... Um, uh, we've got rights reversions, and now we don't know where the licenses are for the Dutch translation and trying to figure out to get to the right person. It, most people don't think beyond getting their book published, and they don't realize the implications in the long term. So that's one of the things I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. You did ask the question, so how do I get an agent? Ah, uh, bribery. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, uh, UPS boxes full of cash. That works really well. Uh, <laughs> Probably not I'm your kidding. first suggestion, though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's like anything. Every agent is different. Every agent in agency has maybe a different philosophy or a different approach. At the very least, they have different personalities. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to find that person with whom you are going to be working with for a long time, who you can trust. Right. So when you get to them, you go to their website. Every agency has a website. You go to their guidelines. You study them. You read about them. You figure out their idiosyncrasies or their interests. If people follow our blog, which is at stevelobby.com, mm -hmm. by the way, if every listener here does not subscribe to our blog, they're doing themselves a disservice as we are trying to help people figure this all out. Yes. I blog on Monday. Articles on your blog. Oh, thank you. Um, Dan blogs on Tuesday, Bob on Wednesday, Tamla on Thursday, and it's every day of every week of the year. And we have approximately 1500 articles available on all aspects of the industry, so you go in, you read, you study, and you figure out, okay, Steve probably wouldn't like this, but I'll bet Tamla would. Boom, you send it to Tamla. Mm -hmm. Same way if you were looking at another agency. What, what I try to um, suggest to people, if you don't want to customize your proposal, at least customize your cover letter to the agency that you're writing to. Because cookie cutter letters, we can tell. We can tell. Just like if you're applying for a job at two different engineering firms, you're probably going to customize your introduction letter a little bit to the two different companies because you want to be impressed by you. So that, that, that sounds simple. It's not. It takes a lot of work. Putting together the great idea, the book proposal, the sample chapters, but that's how you get an agent. You get our attention. Definitely. And I'd also say that going to the conference like we did, you know, we were, um, Steve and I were at Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Writers Conference. It was just always so easy for me to say <laughs> that um, 
it's a great way to connect with agents to get to know them better, to get to know the personality, see if you fit and if it would work as well is get their feedback. It was great to get feedback. I met with two agents on an idea I have and it was wonderful to get their feedback to know, you know, yes, I'm going in the right direction. You might want to try this or that. And let me know when you have it ready. I want a proposal, you know, kind of thing that was, that was affirmative. And so it's, it's always good to get that connection. Um, I did think one thing that we talked about, I was in, Steve did a class about ask me anything. And one thing you mentioned in there that a lot of people probably do not think about that I had not thought about either is um, with the publishing rights, if the publisher goes under, having a clause in your contract that they revert back to you. Is that when that how it went that you Yeah. Yeah, it's a bank a bankruptcy clause. Especially if you're dealing with a small publisher, you know, um um you know one of these uh homegrown uh small operations that's hanging by a thread and if what if the owner decides, you know, I'm tired of this, I'm done. But what happens to your books? What happens to the rights of your books? Or what if the owner gets hit by a bus? That's a terrible thing to say, but what if it does? The contract is what stands. It's a legal binding document for the life of the copyright. Mm -hmm. So if there is some sort of disillusion clause or bankruptcy clause that has the rights revert, then you're probably in good shape. I happen to know of an author who, it was a fairly sizable um, uh, publisher that went bankrupt suddenly, just caught everyone by surprise. At the time, he knew he had 5,000 of his books were in their warehouse. When I talked to him 15 years later, he still didn't know where that warehouse was and still didn't have his rights back. Oh, wow. And he just said, I just had to write it off. You know, I'll never get it back. And if I try to publish it, could it be that someone else now owns the rights to that contract and then they'll sue me? Mm -hmm. And it was just, he was really kind of upset, <laughs> as you can imagine. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Well, and the reason that what brought it up is I, I had also heard, um, I forget where, in some group I was in, this lady, it may have been in the Blue Ridge group, I don't remember, um, the publishing company had went under and she was trying to get her publishing rights back, but she didn't know how. And right. it was in, there was a lot of discussion on what she could possibly do. And, yeah. you know, I, I, that's something as a writer, that's the last thing you're probably thinking about, but yeah. it is a huge deal, obviously, in, especially in your friend's situation and in this lady's situation, you need to have that in there well, to see how situation. Well, the situation I mentioned he didn't have an agent ah so you know, and often an agency depending on the agency uh, our agency tends to uh, focus on the larger publishers for our partners mm -hmm. so we're not really afraid that random house is going to go out of business um, this is not going to happen um, but Thomas Nelson, they didn't go out of business, but they got sold mm -hmm. to Harper Collins, you know, a few years ago. So you have those kinds of transitions that can happen too. 
<clears throat> you know, how does that work? Uh, like when Bethany House was sold to Baker, what happened to the, the rights? Did they just simply transfer over willy-nilly? You know, what was what was that arrangement? Right, All right. So there's <coughs> definitely a usefulness and importance to having an agent working with you if you're going the traditional publishing realm, because that's the best way to get your, you know, that you're secure as, as you can be with your contract and with, with whatever you're dealing with on that point. So tell us, because there's also, you know, there's also the debate with the way the publishing world has changed, which is better, traditional publishing or self-publishing? And my viewpoint is there's pros and cons to both. And it depends on what your goal is. So what is your viewpoint on um, pros and cons for traditional publishing? Well, you, you said it, uh, it depends. It depends on your situation, depending on your, on your goals and all that. The, the pros for traditional publishing, let me put it this way. I guess the best way would be illustrated by one of my clients who is, um, his second book, nonfiction book, is just about to be published by a major publisher. Um, he was had the opportunity to visit the headquarters of that publishing company just last month. Now, he knew there were people involved in the publishing of his first book, but he saw them all in one room last month. And he came back and kind of said, I had no idea that there were 30 people involved in the publication of my book. I mean, I, I knew there was a copy editor, but I never met them. I never even got an email from them. So I, <clears throat> having them all in one room with the marketing and PR and editorial and uh, warehousing and, you know, uh, the print production manager and the cover design people, all of this were in one room. He said, I was, I was astounded. Mm -hmm. So I just have to say that the traditional publishing route, for one thing, you get a team that's involved in your book. Right. Now, your team might be the 1965 New York Mets that can't win a game. <laughs> <laughs> or they might be last year's Houston Astros that are the world champs. So you're, I'm not saying that every team is perfect. But the bottom line is you have a team of professionals. Yes, there might be some brand new college grads who are starting at the company, but in that room are going to be veterans who've been here 10, 20, 30 years. And they know this business like the back of their hand and they know how to avoid mistakes. They know, they know the landscape and get, get you where you need to go. I don't know how to... Um, underemphasize that because it's the, the side of what they can do in their distribution. You have people whose job is to sell your book. Mm -hmm. And if they don't sell your book, they lose their job. So they're motivated to work for you. Technically they're working for their company, but Right. You got to understand, they're, they're not just out there saying, oh, yeah, we've got this book, and okay, how many do you want? Mm -hmm. It's a, if I don't sell this book, I'm going to be evaluated by my boss next month. Mm -hmm. Now, the disadvantages of the traditional publishing, you give up a lot of control. 
Right. You know, contractually, you cannot control the cover of your book. Contractually, you cannot control the price of your book. Contractually, you cannot control various things that go into the selling process. That's their prerogative. Others would say, well, you also don't get as much money. Okay. So how do you pay for that team of 25 people to help your book? Oh, I guess they're all just independently wealthy and they just want to donate their time to you. It's That's no. it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It's money's got to come from somewhere. Right. So if you're, if you look at the actual economics of a book, let's take it, say it's a $15 book. Let's say the publisher sells it for $7 and 50 cents. They now have $7 and 50 cents to work with. If the book cost oh, $1.50 to print. So now you have $6 left of a cost, a certain percentage to editing, cover design, uh, publicity campaigns, all of those things cost money. So they have $6 to play with. Oh yeah, and you have to pay the author royalty. Well, now we only have $5 mm-hmm. or maybe four fifty, depending on the royalty rate. You got to sell a lot of books to pay for the people that are involved, which is why from a pure economic standpoint, why it's so hard to get a traditional contract. Right. Because they are looking at books that will generate revenue. And that makes sense. And that, I mean, I've self-published, so I've been on the other end knowing the expense of trying to do it myself. And, uh, you know, I did not do it very well because I did not know at the time how to do it very well. And so there is a lot of expense and money you could throw at it and doing it yourself, but you may not get a whole lot of return. And if you right. that, and you don't have other people helping you to get it out widespread. So the, to me, the pro of the traditional is their distribution, distribution channels are huge key in helping you. The potential is there. Right. Because the argument is obviously made often well, traditional publishers just toss the book out and hope it sells. Well, but where are they tossing it? They're not to- just tossing it on one table at the back of the room where you're speaking. Right. They're tossing it at 1,000 tables. Mm-hmm. And let's just get away from the physical metaphor, go to the ebook side. They're putting it into distribution channels and they're working on something called metadata which is the secret sauce behind all ebook sales. Mm-hmm. The, the independent really probably doesn't know how to manage metadata very well. Well, the big publishers have staff that's all that they do. They work with MetaComet and other, um, not MetaComet, Firebrand, Firebrand Technologies. MetaComet's a contract uh, royalty thing but Firebrand Technologies that has all these fields that create the, if you like this, you'll like that connection to books. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same side, you have the pros and cons of self-publishing. Right. The pros are is control. Right. And you can make more money if it's successful because you're not paying all those other people. And, once those costs are done, 
you then have a full profit. Right. So if it costs you, let's say, an editorial and marketing cost, it costs you $20,000 to put a book together and really do it well. Well, after the 20000 is covered, everything else is yours 100%. Well, it doesn't work that way in traditional publishing. You get the, mm-hmm. you know, a couple quarters in the in the in the beggar's cup at the end of the day. Um, that's that's the, the balance. The con of self-publishing, as you've already mentioned, is if you don't know what you're doing, right? You can really shoot yourself in the foot because you're creating sales history. Right. One of the things a traditional publisher looks at when they're looking at a new author if they've published before, how many did they sell? Right. And where? And at what price? So, oh yeah, I sold 39,000 copies of my book. Really? At what price? Oh, it was 12 cents. <laughs> well, sorry. The big guys can't do that. Uh, no. So, you know, I, and if it helps anybody listening, I mean, some people think, oh, Steve, you're all anti-self-publishing. I actually had someone tell me that, point blank. And I went, where did you hear that? Because <laughs> it's not true. I mean, in 1997, I started a company to help people self-publish their books. Mm-hmm. W Press. So while I was an editor at Bethany House, I had a side cottage industry of helping people self-publish because I believed in it. Mm-hmm. There were so many books that, needed to be out there that couldn't be published by the big guys, but they needed to have a place that would do it at a reasonable cost and they weren't getting ripped off. Right. I owned that company for about seven, seven or eight years until I sold it off. Um, after I became an agent, I felt it was a conflict of interest mm-hmm. uh, or potential conflict of interest. So I sold it off. So, I'm not anti self-publishing. I'm just saying I'm anti bad self-publishing. Right. Right. And there is a good way to do it on a, on a bad way to do it. And I think if you are, what I have heard and what I've found is if you are out speaking a lot and you're, you know, you've got crowds of 500, a thousand that you're speaking to self-publishing could be a good path for you. You know, But again, you've got to weigh the pros and cons of what do you want the book? What's your goal for the book? And I feel like that's kind of the bottom line. If what, what is your goal for the book is going to help you decide whether self publishing or traditional publishing is the best route for you. And how soon can you, do you need to have it out? Right. Right. Is there some kind of time pressing reason you want it? Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a guy right now that I'm talking to who, a really great writer and he's published before traditionally and he's also self-published but he has a book right now and he's trying to decide whether or not I should be his agent to shop it or if he should self-publish and I said well here's the thing if you go the traditional route partly the nature of the topic and the fact that it's not written yet the soonest it will be out will be the spring of 2020 mm-hmm. if we started today. <laughs> if he were to self-publish, and if he could write it in the next 30 days, he could have the book out this Christmas. Mm-hmm. If he did it himself. Yes. So which do you want? Do you want the 
18 months, two year turnaround because the book isn't written yet? Or do you want to speed rush, speed write, get the thing out and, you know, get cruising for the Christmas season? You could do that right now. And um, I have a feeling you'll go the self-publishing route because he feels the book is urgent and timely. And it may be, but that, that is a question that every author has to ask when they're looking at it. They might say, well, why does it take so stinking long? Well, for one thing, a publisher can't do anything until they know the manuscript's written. Right. They're not going to design a cover. They're not going to start a marketing campaign if there's no book. Right. I can speak to that from personal experience <laughs> at Bethany House. We had, uh, I had the assumption big mistake that I made early in my career that this author was going to write the book on time. And so we designed the cover, we created the catalog copy, we put it in the catalog and the manuscript never showed up. That's so we had a book in our Bethany house catalog that we had to tell the accounts, well, sorry, that one isn't happening. <laughs> it was a, a big mistake. So we basically set a policy that we won't do anything until we have the first draft by the contract of due date. Right. Uh, we just won't, we won't even move. Right. And spend time. So and it's that a, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense, but authors don't like hearing it's going to wait. You have to wait until 2020. It wasn't there a song about in the year 2525, if man <laughs> is still alive. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I guess depending upon the way you look at it, that could be a con to traditional publishing. Um, it could, it, it it could, could be. be. But it could also be good because sometimes by the time you wait and let and you have something, what I call let it percolate, and you do it in an appropriate time frame and let all the things happen that need to happen in the right time frame, then when it's released, it's much better than if you forced it out too fast, you know? Well, it's time to build up an audience. Right. If you, had, you knew you had a book coming out in March of 2020, you would probably start now building your platform even more aggressively because you would know that when it came out, there would be, it would be an event. Right. And so build toward that event because you can plan for it. Right. But if you knew it was coming out in September 25th and it's, you know, middle of June. Oh my goodness. We got it. Wow. How am I going to get all this put together? And suddenly you realize that nobody's going to review the book because they've already reviewed books that are coming out in September. They're, they're, they're reviewing the books that are coming out in November, and December. You right. missed the win. Right. Yeah. All right. So there's all, there's a, a timing to all of it. And I did, yeah. I did skip a question here, Steve, I wanted to ask you, um, and you kind of briefly went over it, but I think you, you probably want to go into a little more de detail, is when an author, um, you know, you say send a proposal, what, I guess, just some basically, what, are, what does that entail um, that you want to send an agent, and how, and, and how professional it is? You know, I'm sure you see some that aren't and some that are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just did a a blog this past well, it was last Monday. Um, so I guess when this broadcast, it'll be a couple weeks ago. But um, 
<clears throat> it was called The Wild Pitch. And it was some of the crazy one or two sentence pitches that I've received. And there, none of them are made up. I mean, they're actual pulling right from the, the cover letter. Uh, it just, they're intended to kind of get people to laugh, but also to help people understand how easy it is to look professional. Mm-hmm. And there's the key. Make it look professional. Imagine your book proposal is a job application because that's what it is. Yes. They're applying to a company, well, to an agency who is going to sell it to a company, but uh, to a company to pay you to write your book. And so, I mean, if I had my uh, folder here uh, close hand, I'd, um, I could pull out the proposal I received on an airplane written on a cocktail napkin <laughs> from one of the other passengers who had recognized me and handed it to the flight attendant and said, could you give that to the guy in 16A? <laughs> and I, I still have the little cocktail napkin with red ink. Someone scrawled a book idea across it. And it was their pitch. And, uh, no. I mean, I don't even know who the person was. Uh, that's not impressive. You're wanting to put your, 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 your best face, your best foot forward. Some of the obvious elements that are in a book proposal, obviously, is the in nonfiction in particular, is what is the big idea? What are we trying to talk about? Is it a soft idea or is it a big idea? Is it a, uh, how, how do I, I want to say this so it doesn't sound horrible? Um, well, too late. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to ask the question, who cares mm-hmm. about every book proposal that comes in? I know it means a lot to you as the writer. I know that. That's I'm assuming that. That's why you're writing it. But who else cares? Right. There are 20, 30,000 people out there who care. Now, that sounds really crass and very unyielding, but it's, it is a reality of the marketplace, so we have to ask that question. Or, if it's not who cares, it's a so what? What you've said is really important, but so what? How, what does that mean to me? Mm-hmm. That's where you end up with a nonfiction book. You obvi- a very uh, simplistic way of saying it is you, you state the problem. You then write your solution. And then some people stop. Mm-hmm. Because there's a third part is application. Right. So it's problem, solution, application. So it's so what? Yes. God is sovereign. Now, this is going to sound very heretical, but so what? Who cares? For well, someone who... What are you supposed to do about it, right? You know? Well, honest, the honest answer is we, when we're in horrific emotional, physical, spiritual pain, we cry out and ask that question. So how do you apply that? The idea of the sovereignty of God? Okay, well, help me get there. Because that is where 
peace is found. That's where um, a life in fully in Christ can be found. But if you just leave someone at the side of the road, well, you're one of the people who passed by and the Good Samaritan didn't. You know, that all those religious leaders passed by and went, oh, that poor soul, and they kept going. Mm-hmm. And left them in their pain, whereas the Good Samaritan reached down and said, I need to, I can help you. Right. And who knows what they talked about on the way to the end? That's, that conversation is not in scripture. Mm-hmm. And it makes you wonder what was actually being said. Anyway, sorry, I just dropped into my Bible teacher mode. Um, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> especially when you realize the guy on the, on the ground was a Jew and the guy helping him was a Samaritan. And they don't, traditionally, they didn't like each other. Right. So, well, and on along those lines, too, you know, I hear a lot of people wanting to write memoirs, which I think is great, but I feel like you need to have a point to that memoir. Is it going to help someone with something? Is it going to... Um, encourage them what's the what is the so what yes you went through something horrible or something you know something strange happened in your life but I feel like there needs to be a point other than hey here's this book about me and that's so so incredibly true I mean uh, I wrote a blog post uh, I don't know how long ago it was now uh, called when your book becomes personal Mm-hmm. And in fact, while we're talking here, I'm going to look that up. We can uh, put the link in the show notes too. Here it is. Yeah, when your book becomes personal, th- I'm just going to read you. This is a sampling of nonfiction proposals I had received in the in a 30 day period. Okay, here are the topics. Okay. Brain tumor, deliverance from demons, struggles of a single parent, death of a child, domestic violence, husband announcing he's gay, terminal cancer, murder of a family member, a marriage book inspired by the death of a wife, sexual addiction, medical malpractice, chronic illness, sexual assault, divorce, and coming out as a lesbian. That's in one month. Okay, are all of them publishable? Well, the, the topics are, but why? Why this one and not the other one? Why? It's overwhelming the amount of pain, and I, I personally believe that a lot of writers write out of pain of some sort. Mm-hmm. It's what they feel called to do because they want to help others overcome their pain, or they want their story to be told so that others can find encouragement and hope. But what makes this book different? Right. I will say it this way, and I, I'm, I'm now, goodness, how many times have I said this at conferences where I will say, if we were to stop the conference, at Blue Ridge there were 510 people there. Mm-hmm. If we stopped the conference, and gave the microphone to each person and gave each person five minutes to tell their story. We would have been there for a week and had something called church. Mm-hmm. But why would anyone spend 20 bucks for Steve Lobby's story? Right. I'm, my story's not unique. 
It might be interesting to someone who's interested in me, but what makes it unique enough to where, oh, wow, this is going to be that helpful. So it's not to say memoirs aren't important, but don't think that just because you've written a memoir that it's going to be the next Eat, Pray, Love. It's probably not going to. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a conversation with a woman the other day. And this goes back to our self-publishing question. She had written her book, her story, mm-hmm. and self-published it, and it only sold seven, eight hundred copies. And now she was calling a literary agent saying, "How do I fix this problem?" Well, unfortunately, um, Waterbrook and Tyndale aren't going to pick up her book. It was evident. Mm-hmm. just by the, by the conversation. And then I would say a few minutes into the conversation, she let it out that, oh, yeah, well, I will. One positive thing is my, my niece uh, came to Christ because of my book. <laughs> and Joyce, I stopped and I went, wait, what? She goes, yeah, it was really a neat thing. You know, she read the story. I hadn't realized some of the things I'd gone through. And it really, you know, it changed her life and, you know, pointed her to Jesus. And it's just really neat. I, I said, let me ask you a question. If 10 years ago you had known that if you saved $500 a year for 10 years that your niece would come to Christ, would you have done that? Would you have saved the $500 a year to do that? She goes, oh, in a heartbeat. I went, guess what? You did. So your book has value. Mm-hmm. And you did it the right way. You self-published it and put it in the hands of people who cared and to whom it had meaning. Right. That doesn't mean it has to be on the New York Times bestseller list and on Barnes & Noble. You have fulfilled your obedience to God to tell your story. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's true. I, I, that's some people need to realize that that maybe your book isn't meant to be this huge thing. That it's meant for a specific person or group of people, and that's okay. It's okay. It's okay if, like you said, if that's what you felt God led you to do, there was a reason for that. And right. just because it's not sold millions of books doesn't mean it's a failure, because in the big scope of eternity. That's a, a huge success. You know. Well, it's hard for us as agents because, because we are the ones who say no. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen all the time, but we can get some pretty vicious reactions. Wow. <laughs> oh, I've been contemned to the hot place many times. <laughs> responding to my no thank you email and they come back and say well you obviously have you obviously are not a christian you obviously are not listening to god you're not in god's will and you are condemned for all eternity and i just want to go well yeah yeah we'll find out won't we (laughs) man um uh, I, I have received some of the most vicious feedback. It makes me, at some point, I want to say, well, why even bother saying anything? Right, right. Well, you're, and you're, anyway. Yeah. Well, and just quickly, um, didn't you say you had something for those that have never 
created a proposal. Um, isn't there something, a website you have that can help them with that? Um, oh, yeah. If you go to the guidelines, we have it kind of laid out. But I also have, um, I started the Christian Writers Institute uh, a couple years ago. Uh, I think the link is below um, uh, this podcast is that if you go there, it's intended as a very inexpensive way to take audio and video classes on various topics. And I have this, I mean, it's an old audio, but it's a $5 audio of me teaching for an hour on how to write a book rules. And the basics are all there. Uh, we'll be updating that class here in the near future, but uh, right now, $5, goodness sake. It costs you more for a double Whopper with cheese. <laughs> now, and if you're going to be yeah. investing into your career to do it professionally, you definitely want to know how to do it correctly. Yeah. If you don't know, just go and look. And you don't necessarily have to spend thousands of dollars. And the, one of the points of the Christian Writers Institute is not everyone can afford or have the time to get away from work, to go to a writer's conference. So it's a way for them to have that conference online. Correct, yes. At their own time, on any device, at any time of their own choosing. They can listen to an audio while they're jogging, while they're driving. Um, I had one lady who is a missionary in, in, in Pakistan and said, this is one of the greatest things because I can almost take a writer's conference in Pakistan mm -hmm. because it's all sitting here, right here on this site and I don't have to fly, uh, you know, 50,000 miles to get to some location and be away from my family. So yes, the Christian yeah. Writers Institute is designed for that. And uh, any of your listeners can go there and find a variety of fiction, nonfiction, magazine writing, even classes on how to, how to do an interview. Now, maybe you should take that, Joyce. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Bad joke. Uh, Actually, okay. I did have somebody this ask that question that I, I need to send her to it. She, she asked me for, because if you're trying to interview someone for a book, it can be, and if you've ever done that before, it can be intimidating and not sure, fumble how around. So I'm sure there's no good guidance there. All right. How do you how do you extract the information from the person, and if you're going to use their work, what kind of release forms do you need to get from them if you're going to quote them? I mean, those little things are what make a book uh, in the publishing world, the magazine writing world. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. um, we also have. Um, uh, uh, been doing the Christian Writers Market Guide, the publication every year. Yes. yes. That's both available in print and online. The link for that is also below. Okay, great. And it's kind of a directory of all agents, all publishers, all magazine companies, uh, designers, freelancers. What makes that book unique? Because I've had people say, well, can't you get that on the internet? Sure. Try Googling Christian Freelance Editor. How do you know they're really who they are? Mm -hmm. Who's curating it? Who's making sure they're legit? Right. Well, that's what we've done with this book, uh, is to try to create a, a place that at least there has been some vetting done uh, 
and then you do your own due diligence. But, you know, it, it's kind of like uh, in the old days where you take the yellow pages and open up to plumbing and just point and hope you get it right. <clears throat> All that, uh, you know, plumbers are plumbers, but there's different kinds of plumbers. And that's the, <clears throat> that's the same way with the market guide. Sounds great. And it is very useful. And um, we did talk about that in more detail with uh, my other podcast with Michelle Medlock Adams in episode 204. So if you want Good. some detail on how to use a, a market guide, um, listen to that podcast because she talks about that. So you've shared some, but tell us what are some mistakes that you see new authors making? Most new authors, I would say the most common mistake is um, is going out before they're ready. Um, you know, someone told them last month that they should write a book, and so they did. And then they send the proposal. Well, <clears throat> it's not ready. Mm-hmm. It has learned the craft. Uh, and, and here's here's one of the challenges because there are some people that are born writers. Just like some people are born basketball players. I mean, as soon as they get the ball in their hand, they are magic in what they can do with it. It's, it's incredible. And I have met born writers that from day one, they're brilliant. Mm-hmm. You have others who were like me. I had to learn how to play the game of basketball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was tall. I could kind of jump, but I learned how to jump and learn how to dump the basketball and learned how to shoot the long range jump shot and play defense and all of that because I loved the game and I wanted to be better at it, but it took a long time. I was a much better player after many years of practice. Right. So there's the metaphor for the writer. You have some who start out, but you have others that, Oh wow. They don't even know how to string a good sentence together. Um, They can't speak in clarity. They, they, they can't think in logical sequence. They are stream of consciousness writers. Um, and yeah, that might work in some cases, but generally no, it doesn't. And so that's where I see an awful lot of people who are just not ready. They think they are because they heard how easy it is to write a book. And it is easy if you know how to put words on, on a page. But putting it together in a commercial format and all that, yeah. Learn it first. Right. And I'll tell you, and I know you've, you, you mentioned some of your other um, podcasts. Um, do not discount the magazine market as a way to learn how to write. Mm-hmm. Being told you have 500 words to say this, and they're not kidding. They don't want 505 words. They want 500 words because that's all the space they have. And can you write to that restriction? Can you be tight? Can you make your point? Can you learn how to deal with an editor who says, I don't like that word, but it's your absolute favorite word in the entire English language, (laughs) but they want to take it out. Mm -hmm. How do you react to that, to be editing, to being edited? Can you meet deadlines? I mean, all of those kinds of things help you learn the process so often. (laughs) people who come out, like I mentioned recently, and hand me their 866,000 word novel. (laughs) Who's going to read it? 
He did. <laughs> I didn't. Oh my gosh. 866,000 words. I mean, for goodness sake, that that's unbelievable yeah. in size. It is. That's, that's enormous. I edit um, as well because you know, I'm a writing coach and I help my clients with editing. And one of the big things is being more concise. And I have this one lady that she can string together the most beautiful sounding words, but they mean absolutely nothing. And I'm like, this sounds pretty, but what are you saying? <laughs> you know, what are you trying to say? Yeah. yeah. What's the point? And a lot of times it's, it's, I, I kind of get what she's trying to say, but she's trying to say it so pretty that it, it loses its meaning. Yeah. And see, that's where huge. I would take someone like that and say, okay, let's go read Annie Dillard together and find someone who can write beautiful sentences, but they make a point. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, mm -hmm. they take you somewhere. There's a point to the beautiful walk through the garden. Right. And that's not to say you cannot write with flourish. You cannot write with beauty, but there's a way of writing it so that you're communicating. Right. And that is that's a talent. It's a, it, it's something that can be learned. It's a gift, but it also is something that can be learned. Um, or how should I say the gift can be uh, examined, discovered, or uh, enhanced. It can be developed. Developed. Yes, definitely. And I, and I have to say, I've blogged since 2010. And I think that made a huge difference in my writing because if you look at what I first wrote, you probably cry too. <laughs> to now, and I have learned when knowing that somebody's eyes is going to see my words made a huge difference in the way I wrote, and learning how to communicate in a way where they feel there's some pace, there's some action, there's some application. You know, you want it to be interesting and you just don't want 600 words of yada, yada, yada. Okay. And then do this, you know, you want to make it interesting to them and helpful. Same thing with the, our, our blog. Um, I am, I don't consider myself a writer. So writing that blog every Monday, it's a deadline. I've got to have something because we know that there's between 500 and 800 people that are going to actually open and read what I've written mm -hmm. every week. That's frightening. <laughs> That's absolutely terrifying. You want to have something that has some value, some meaning, some purpose. You don't want to just, you know, talk about something that is just filler. And uh, that's, there, there's a lot of pressure there. That's a good thing. If I were a professional writer, that would be an incredible exercise. It's like uh, practicing the piano every day it is. for two hours. After it a is. while, you actually can do chopsticks really good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's the thing that I, I've explained to writers in different ways that I've talked about. You know, just like an Olympian athlete does not wake up one day and go, I want to be an Olympian. They, there's blood, sweat, and tears that get them to that point that yeah. takes them there. They have coaches, they have mentors, they watch, they learn. 
they don't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to be an Olympian. You can't, you can wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a writer, but you got to learn. You know, if you've right. never written before, you've got to learn, like you said, learn the craft, learn the business, learn how to work with other people, learn how to take criticism in a positive light and learn how to um, do this. And so that is, yeah. that's huge is to really, um, learn that through practice and the best way to practice is putting it in front of people, whether it be blog articles, yeah. you name it, something like that. And to add to that, um, just to make sure I'm not misrepresenting or misstating it, because what happens if they, if, if a writer hears, Oh my goodness, Steve lobby is saying that so many of the writers aren't ready. They then have fear that if they show it, they're going to get rejected. Guess what? You will. Mm -hmm. Rejection is simply a part of the fabric called the writing sweater. You put it on and it's been knit with rejection letters. Mm -hmm. That is how you learn. Rejection doesn't mean forever. Rejection doesn't mean, oh, it's over. It just means, oh. And the only way you can reject it is if you try. So I'll have people sit down in front of me at a writer's conference and they are so nervous because they think this 15 minutes is going to make their career or break their career. And I have to say, relax. It's not. This is a place to practice. Mm -hmm. This is a safe place to fail. Mm -hmm. Sure. Every once in a while, someone sits down and their idea is amazing. Their platform is gasp worthy and their writing is brilliant okay but that is rare right and they probably didn't do it overnight <laughs> exactly it's more of a we're here to plant seeds this is why, why do agents go to conferences we're to plant seeds we're to develop writers we're to encourage them and yeah we might find that one diamond but you have to dig through an awful lot of mud and coal to get there. Mm -hmm. Sounded bad, but you know what I mean. It's this idea of, oh goodness, now I'm afraid to send anything. Well, then you're never going to succeed at all. Right. Well, and here's the thing to remember. Um, Michelle brought this up, but I did not know. Frank Peretti, who wrote This Present Darkness, and I forget how many books he said he's written a ton, I think 80 or something. Um, he, his, this Present Darkness was rejected 36 times or something like that yeah. before he, was, he finally got a publisher. And sometimes that's just a timing thing. Sometimes it's publishers aren't well, sure what to do with there's it. There's more to that story. There's more to that story. Do you know the rest of the story, Steve? He was, he was rejected. I'm sorry. He was contracted by the publisher who had earlier rejected his book. Ah. Same. Yeah. He had, uh, Jan Dennis had rejected this present darkness. And then Peretti published a few of the Cooper family adventure, uh, YA middle grade novels. Mm -hmm. And then Jan Dennis asked Frank says, no, he had that, Longer adult novel? He goes, yeah, you turned it down. He says, well, I'd like to see that again. Well, no, you, you said no. He <laughs> goes, not 
I, I, I really like to look at it again. And so you had the same publisher who had turned it down and ended up being the publisher and sold over a million copies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that rejection doesn't necessarily mean anything. No, I mean, it doesn't always mean that it's bad. It just means no. that it's not the right time, not what they need, you know, something. Yeah, talk to any editor and ask them about the one they let get away. My, and I'm a little infamous for this, so I'm happy to share it again. Uh, but I rejected Ted Decker before he was a Decker that we all know of. Mm-hmm. Uh, last fall, I was digging through some old boxes in our barn because we had some flooding uh, issues. So I was trying to go through the storage and make sure what was damaged and what wasn't. I found this box of manuscripts from my days at Bethany House. I have no idea why I kept them. But I pulled out of that box in a plastic binder a full manuscript from Theodore Decker <laughs> from Theodore. And it was the manuscript that I had rejected in 1998, mm. 1999. Uh, it was later published under a different name and different title. Um, and every time I see him, he reminds me that I was one of those that rejected him. So we have this little, banter that happens every time we see each other but it it happens well you know i've read stephen king's on memoir and i think the same thing happened to him there was a book that was rejected um it was a book or an article i can't remember which one now the story went but anyways one of the people that rejected it then has ended up publishing it and they had forgotten that they had rejected it and of course stephen king reminds them (laughs) that they did uh, his first novel was actually a short story that he had thrown away. And his wife took it out of the trash mm-hmm. and said, no, you need to keep working on the, the on this thing called Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you, you just... Uh, incredible stories out there. And it, it just don't... So, yes, a mistake authors make is they go out too early. And it's not ready. Mm-hmm. So... Well, how do I know it's ready? Well, that's why you join critique groups. That's why you maybe hire a freelance editor like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have someone who's a professional and say, oh, yeah, you've got something pulled together here. This is really well done. And here's, here's how you go about it. You go to a writer's conference. You meet the people. And you, have some, you build some body of confidence. But you don't just say, I wrote a novel and sent it to the the uh, the Writer's Digest Book of Agents. Um, that's just not smart. Um, it's not going to get you anywhere. No, definitely not. Um, any other big ones that you want to go over quickly, that m- mistakes that you see commonly authors try? No, I think that's the biggest one. I mean, there are, there are other common mistakes, but that's that's one of the biggest ones. They, they haven't figured out how to do a book proposal right or they, they just haven't learned how to write well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the bottom get, line is get, get educated books. on your craft. I, I may get a book that's a B or a B plus if it was to get a grade in, in class. That's not good enough. Mm-hmm. It's good. I mean, a lot of people would wear a B plus with pride, but we're looking for A plus 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 plus. 
which means it, that's just a matter of if you've got a good story idea of, of it's refining it to that point, you know, and figure out how do you refine it. And that's where I believe, you know, editors and critique groups can come and, and help with that. Would you yeah. agree? I agree. All right. So, and we kind of touched on this question, but just if you, if you want to review real quick. Um, how can an author know which is best to pursue, traditional or self-publishing? Yeah, like we said, it's really depends on your circumstance. Uh, usually it is timing at, for a speaker. If you need something in the back room, you, you're probably not um, not wrong in pursuing self-publishing, but you have, that, you have the goal of being traditionally published. Just remember, as soon as you self-publish and put it on Amazon, it's a it's like test marketing to the public. Mm -hmm. And so I received a query letter from a fellow the other just a month ago, who said, "Okay, so I self-published my book, and the, the sales history is I've sold five copies, and it's been a year." Um, that basically means the market voted and nobody wanted it. That's awful. And, and you did no marketing or little marketing. And of course he claims it's because no marketing was done, but it's on Amazon. It's available. It's sitting in a store. Mm -hmm. Amazon is a very, very big bookstore. Mm -hmm. You can say, well, nobody found it. Okay. So how is that going to make a publisher get excited? Because you didn't help them find it in the first place. So you see the problem. And that's where people can make that mistake is they're going out too early because they need the byline, they need the book out. Now, if it's a seed planter to building the next next idea and you end up selling five or 10,000 copies, well, now you've got a platform. You can show that you can sell books. Um, you know, obviously, because my job is to help people get traditionally published, I am going to lean in that direction. But I'm also saying I, uh, I'm not ignorant to the fact that self-publishing has a, a very viable op alternative and a viable option for people. Right. Uh, I don't want to go the traditional route. Well, and here's the other thing. You need to educate yourself on marketing if you're going to self-publish. And I've, what I'm seeing, because I've got somebody who's ready and raring to run out of the gate with a book that's not written yet, that he wanted it done by his birthday. Well, we started working on the writing schedule, and it, it's not going to be done till his birthday. And I said, you need to readjust. You've got to readjust your idea if you want it to be a success of when you're going to publish it. So instead of your goal being that it's ready for, for your birthday to print, it's how about it's your goal is it's finished on your birthday. <laughs> you know? Very good advice. Or also say uh, it can be published, but which birthday? Right. It doesn't right. have to be the next one. <laughs> right. And um, well, I think this is a 30th. So that's kind of why it was a, a monument uh, to him. And uh, so, and, and I get that, but I'm like, I just, you know, I, I, I read Tim Grawl a lot about, um, publishing and his thing is six to nine months marketing yeah. 
and it makes sense. And if you follow Tim Grohl's suggestions, if you're going to self-publish, you'll have much more success than if you just kind of wing it. You know, oh, you he's brilliant. Yeah, he, he, he's brilliant great with that, you know. And A lot of people are very successful in self-publishing and they don't need the traditional publishing side. And that's great. That is absolutely great. But yeah, you got to do it right and you got to do it well. And you got to have some intentionality to it. It's a becomes a full time small business. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think a lot of writer, writers don't understand that right. that the publishing part is another business part that you have to if you're going to self publish, you really need to learn and maybe even get some help with because I do have some friends that help people do that. And yeah. that, that's huge. So definitely if you're going to self publish, um, take a check out Tim Grahl, G R A H L dot com, and his link will be in the show notes. Um, but if you're going to traditionally publish, you still need to know you still need to market yourself, yep. even, even if you traditionally publish. So, either way, learning what he talks about will help you because he talks about you know getting connections with influencers. So, I highly suggest um, checking him out. Uh, okay, so last thing here, what words of advice and encouragement would you have for new writers or just someone who may be struggling to write their book um, and just and struggling to figure out if they want self-publishing or traditional publishing? What would be your words of advice to them, to help them? Again, I, I like to say is first is just relax in the process and don't get too tied up in the result. Now, writing is a, a calling, but it's also an, obe an obedience. You're, something is being placed on your heart and your mind, and you realize you have the ability to put, it, uh, put those words on the screen or in print. Not everyone has that ability. And so, you know, get that book finished first. Just, yeah, it's a struggle. If it wasn't a struggle, every, anyone could do it. Oh, wait. Everyone is. <laughs> it, it, if it was easy, anyone could do it. I mean, that, that's the old joke of the, uh, the writer who was actually going into brain surgery. Mm -hmm. And the doctor leaned over her before they put her uh, under anesthesia and said, Are you sure you're, you're a writer, right? She goes, yeah. She goes, yeah, when I retire, I'm going to write a book. And she said, well, when I retire, I'm going to become a brain surgeon because it's that easy. <laughs> and so the, the idea is that, yeah, it's hard work. But if you give up, then the wrong principality has won the battle. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I truly believe that we are in a, um, we are in a business to change the world word by word mm -hmm. it goes back to one of them. It's kind of the saying for our agency. It's the philosophy of our agency. Well, that's what we're all about. We are in the business and our job as agents is to help. It's to help change that world word by word. And if you don't do it, then who, who, who's other, whose words are going to be out there? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we if we stop the pen, if we stop the keyboard, then other words are going to gain ascendancy. 
Right. And that, uh, the, the tide is not going to go well. No. So my Something will end, fill the void, definitely. Absolutely. You know, so my encouragement, my advice, if I were to say this to any writer is, uh, you know, grab a hold of the gusto, get ready for the ride. It's going to be painful. It's not necessarily going to be fun. It has its moments of incredible joy. Um, like imagine that woman I'm, we're talking about who self-published about her niece. Mm -hmm. uh, there can be moments of incredible joy. But that isn't why we're doing it. We're not doing it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. If we were doing it for ourselves, we'd be in the secular market chasing the almighty dollar. Right. In the Christian market, we are not chasing the almighty dollar. We are following the almighty God. Right. And there's a big difference between the two. Definitely. I agree. I agree. Well, I appreciate it, Steve. I have learned a lot, and I'm sure my listeners have too. And we will have all of Steve's links in the show notes so that you can check out uh, his agency as well as the Christian Writers Institute and some other things, the Christian Market Guide, that will help you with your writing career. So thank you and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Rhine Hour, nonfiction tips from the Rhine Coach. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and listen on your favorite app each week. Leave a review and let others know how they can learn about the craft and business of writing. It's time to write your book. Music